Welcome to Co-op Cast, a podcast where we will discuss cooperative and solo board games. Join us as we talk about board games news followed by a discussion topic. My name is Steve and joining me today is a new guest, John. Hello everyone. So this is my buddy John. Um, if you listened to our episode a couple weeks ago, um, episode 30 I believe, that was with Howard was on and we might have mentioned John John's name a few times. Well, this is that John. My ears were burning for sure, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Uh, I think it's pretty cool that, that you guys uh, take your platform and then allow it to kind of extend out to some other folks. Um, you know, I do like your co-host, Colin, but uh, but yeah, I think that's kind of cool to do. We You get to hear more ideas and more thoughts from people and uh, and interesting topics. So why don't you uh, elaborate on how we met and kind of what your bo- bo- uh, background is in board gaming a little bit? Yeah, man, um, how we how we met is a, a little tricky. Uh, let's see if I can do my best here. Uh, so, gosh, how long ago now? Five, six years, maybe, maybe even seven years ago. Um, I moved for my job uh, for the same company that I currently work at today. Steve and I both work in the same company, completely different areas. Um, but, uh, but somehow we were both out in this uh, location in Iowa uh, where our company has some business. And, uh, and so as part of that, like we were, we were all kind of young and in the same area together. So it was just natural that like, people would just try to connect with one another and hang out. Um, so we had a mutual friend. I don't know how you met our mutual friend, Justin, but he told me he was going over to somebody's house. Like they were having a party and there, you know, there's going to be like some other, you know, young folks that work for the company there. So I was like, okay, cool. Cause I was new to the area and didn't know anyone. And it's like, yeah, it'd be nice to have some friends. And then uh, we hung out and, I think at one point you busted out the game Bang. So, and you had like the big bullet version and you busted that out and like, it, it didn't really stick with me, but you know, that was like my first introduction. And then you and I just started hanging out together. And a lot of our hanging out, I think, wasn't necessarily around board games, but every once in a while one would dabble in. And then what really got me was, uh, I moved down to another city in Iowa that was a little further away. And then my wife and I invited you over. And I don't even remember if your wife was with you or not on that trip, but you brought pandemic with you. And for whatever reason, that game just, I mean, it, it just, it grabbed me, man. It was, I was just blown away by it. I was, I was impressed with all these different moving pieces that are going on and trying to figure out this ever-evolving puzzle and i like the way that that rotto from rotto runs through kind of describes pandemic where he says it's not like a constant pressure like you feel like this is a co-op game that is beating you into submission but it's kind of like a roller coaster so you have these moments where you're just coasting and you're like oh man like we're gonna win this thing you know we're doing great and then all of a sudden there's a turn and, you know, the deck just really starts fighting back and suddenly you have cubes all over the board and viruses are spreading everywhere and nobody can figure out what to do. And in Asia, uh, it's going wild over there. And, 
you know, it, it's really cool. And uh, I just loved all that, loved the interacting parts, and I loved how there were multiple characters that had all these different abilities and just instantly hooked. And then uh, I was getting into YouTube at the same time. So then when I was getting into YouTube, you know, I just started like I, I would look up stuff on Pandemic and then I found like other stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, there's like people who put out content for this. Like what? <laughs> and, like a lot of people found the Dice Tower early on. So then I just started watching all their stuff and buying all their games. So it's like when you and Howard were talking about those levels of gamers, I was just like, yep check yep check yep check like on and on down the list and uh that was that was definitely it and then you know my wife and i would just slowly start playing other games and then we learned what we like and what we don't like and um and then just went through that evolution so yeah i often reach out to john whenever i want to talk talk about heavy games or i want to hear about heavy game because he seems to be all about any type of heavy board games out there yeah, speaking about that evolution, that that's eventually what happened to me. So I started finding that I had apparently there's like such a thing as like a taste in board games, which I didn't really know about at the time. And then just through luck, through sheer luck, I started finding some of them. And uh, I think I think what really helped me early on discover those tastes was fi- finding Rado in the content that he was putting out because it just so happened that our tastes. Uh, kind of a line I've, I've kind of evolved a little bit from there too but i really started liking the games that he was putting out content for and it got really bad like it got to the point where he'd release a video and i'd be like click bye <laughs> 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 but uh but yeah like i've calmed down a lot since then like this this year this year all I, all i've been doing is just waiting for kickstarters to deliver that's it um but but yeah, I started um, figuring out that I liked more Euro games, um, and I started liking games that had a less of, you know, what they call the Ameritrash kind of um, mechanisms and components in. Um, you know, didn't didn't care for a lot of that stuff. Um, I had Eldritch Horror at one point, uh, played it a bunch of times, and then I was just eventually. It just it it didn't stick with me. It didn't grab me. You know, it's just we all kind of figure out that we have these tastes, right? And and uh, and then I started going down the path of these Euro games, and then um, I I was like, you know, I wonder if there's more people that put out media content on these type of games. And so I started searching, and I just happened to find Heavy Cardboard after they released their like. It was either their first or second podcast. I mean, it was completely, you know, universe randomness, right? Where it's like you think of something and you search for it and then suddenly it just appears. So it was crazy. So I started listening to Heavy Cardboard podcast from the very beginning. And then I was like, man, these guys like all the same stuff that I do. And it was really kind of nice to find that because then it helps me discover more games that I have a high probability of liking versus going out on a whim and buying something and then finding out you don't like it and trying to sell it, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, that's what we're going to uh, tie into today uh, with John on. I figured we'll do a quick talk about what we've been up to lately, uh, jump into the news, and then have the discussion topic of heavy games, what makes game heavy. And so with that said, let's jump into recently played stuff. So I've been continuing on the Sword and Sorcery campaign. 
This is the still in the first act, but it's the side quest arcane portal. And I'm finding the side quest to be more engaging than the original act one quest. Uh, I don't know what, what it is exactly about the quest that seem to be longer or, or there's more happening, more paths. Uh, it's been quite fun. I've been enjoying it a lot more. The issue I'm having with these new quests is I'm finding it a little difficult to understand the, the alterations they're doing to the stories. Like the, They're actually kind of clever in what they're trying to do, but it's also making it a little bit harder to understand some of the details. We've made some rules mistakes that we had to go back and retcon. Uh, nothing too serious, but that's been one minor quibble with this new new content so far. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I you introduced me to Sword and Sorcery when I came out and visited you a little while back. Um and yeah, I have to say that I was impressed with that game because going into it, I didn't think that it would be up my alley at all. Uh and I didn't think that I would like it, especially after having played Gloomhaven. I just figured that it would be a mountain too impossible to climb. Um, but it, it actually exceeded my expectations. Uh, so yeah, I was definitely impressed with the game. I can see why people like it. I can see why people would play it. Um, I, I would say for me personally, you know, it's not going to be something that I'm going to go out and get just because I have Gloomhaven and I'm already struggling getting that to the table and getting it played and it has so much content. So, uh, so yeah, like it's, uh, that's just my situation right now with gaming but but yeah it's it's one of those games where if i did come over and visit with you and and you really wanted to play it because you know you're trying to string together these quests like yeah i'd sit down and play a game yeah i'd say for the average person i think gloomhaven's probably going to outrank sword and sorcery but i still think sword and sorcery does a great job and and uh, is worth investigating if you're interested in it. So I'll I'll keep reporting on it um, as we go along if my thoughts change. So yeah, it'll be interesting to hear that. The other game I played recently is some of the local gamers wanted to play Fortune and Glory, and this is an older game from Flying Frogs. It's basically Indiana Jones in a box. <laughs> so you are traveling across the entire world, and you're going on adventures, and there are Nazis and mobsters and all sorts of... It's it's basically Indiana Jones. Uh, this is a pretty grandiose game. It's older. I know they're still making content for it, which I was kind of surprised to hear. I thought they were, kind of, they were done with it. So we met up to play Fortune and Glory at a local gaming store and taught it to the other, other gamers who were interested in playing this. And I'm kind of settling into into my thoughts on it. I, I've been kind of kind of iffy on where I whether I like it, where I dislike it, and I think at this point I'm kind of I'm kind of done with it, and I'll I'll say why. Wow, I'm actually kind of impressed. Yeah, I don't luck doesn't really bother me a whole lot in the game, but for Fortune and Glory, it has a lot of luck in it, and it's there are rules to mitigate and remove that luck, which I generally play with. But how much do I want to remove from it to make it enjoyable is the question. Uh, and I think I'm at that point now where my collection is big enough where it's probably not going to get played much. Like once a year someone asks for it. But So why, why am I holding on to it is, is the real question. So if it sounds interesting to you, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad game. But be prepared for lots of luck. It really is a pushy luck game with an Indiana Jones theme. Yeah, I, I'm probably the wrong person to critique this game <laughs> based on like what I said in the intro and my personal taste. It's it's definitely going to be a lot more on that Ameritrash side. And like I think the way I would almost describe the game is it's it's kind of like an experience game. 
right? So like you have to know going into it that it's it's gonna be very swingy. Um, you know, you're you're gonna have these moments where an event might happen out of sequence with like another event that just happened, and you you're gonna get stuff like that. So you're not you're not going into it to have a cohesive story like you are with a sword and sorcery, you know, but. But still, if that's your thing, like if you just want to sit around the table and drink and maybe you had a really hard day at work and you don't want to think, you just want to shut off your brain and try to have some fun, it, I think it could potentially fit that bill. So those are a couple games I've been playing. Um, what have you been up to, John? Yeah, so for me, um, actually not that much <laughs> right now. I've, I've been busy with some other things going on. Um, so the, the Heavy Cardboard podcast group, though, they, they do put on an event they call HeavyCon for their listeners. Um, they actually use the Patreon system for support. So uh, for the people who, who back their Patreon, they give them the opportunity um right now it's still a pretty small group so i think there's only going to be like 150 of us and they have something like 600 some backers for patreon um so not everybody's going to be able to make it uh out of that group but but still i think it's going to be fun you know it's it's nice to kind of get around a group of uh, gamers who enjoy the same kind of games and same kind of experiences and, and get to get to immerse yourself in that for a few days um and they're also a very social bunch so it's not only just going to be about the gaming i'm I'm actually really looking forward to sitting down with all various people and, and talking to them that's um, one of the things i like most about this hobby is just that everyone seems to be so social and you almost have to be if you want to play games and i love that part <laughs> right yeah i mean if you want to get out there and meet people because it's still not as ubiquitous as other hobbies out, are out there in the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I did actually recently play King Domino and uh, picked it up from a local con in my area uh, here in the Quad Cities. Um, there was a, It was a con put on by the local game store. He tries to do it every year. And uh, I showed up on a Saturday. Like, I got back from work travel on a Friday, showed up on a Saturday, and I was like, hey, do you guys still need help with anything? They're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, well, let me go ahead and give you the $20 entry fee. And they were, they looked through the list and they said, no, we had you down as a volunteer. And I was like, I didn't even know I was going to be coming here. So it was just kind of <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny set of circumstances. Um, so I, I go down there and then I asked them, all right, what do you need help teaching? And they put me on King Domino and uh, – Gosh, what is the Bamboo Panda game? It's ex- it's escaping me all of a sudden. Takenoko? Yeah, Takenoko. So I got put on Takenoko and King Domino and had to teach those for four hours straight. <laughs> so needless to say, my brain was a little fried. But but I did appreciate um, some of this. I did appreciate the simplicity of King Domino in that design. And it's, it's kind of a fun, cool little game. And then um, somebody came up with like a three-year-old kid and we actually got a three-year-old kid to play king domino that's awesome obviously we kind of had to tweak the rules a little bit like and obviously he had no idea about scoring right but i mean he was having fun and so then i thought well shoot maybe i should buy this and try it out with my kid because she was going to be coming over a little bit later so yeah so uh my my daughter was going to be coming out decided I would pick this game up and give it a try with her, and I would try the same things we tried with that other three-year-old. It worked. 
So those of you out there who have a three or four year old King Domino, you just got to strip out the rules. And if they start grabbing stuff um, and breaking the placement rules, let them break the placement rules. The only rules I held firm to were how you select a domino tile in the game, which I won't go over here. You can, you know, listeners can go look it up if they, if they don't know that game. But, but yeah, um, kids know how to follow that, even three-year-olds. They know how to take the worker, place it on a tile, and then wait their turn. And then when it's their turn to grab the tile, they grab it, right? They completely get that, which is really cool. That's fun. I guess the last thing that um, to explain, and I think I can tie this back to gaming. I'll let you and the, the listeners judge me on that. But one of the reasons why I've been so busy and haven't gotten into gaming is because I have a second hobby, which I've really been getting into powerlifting. And for some reason like it's it's really it's really just catching hold of me man and i've been doing this consistently for like a about a year and a half now uh and really getting into it and i think what it is is there's like some some concepts between the gaming hobby and between that that kind of apply like there's this push to be better with something kind of like there is in strategic competitive you know euro games um and there's also a push to see your numbers improve in powerlifting, which to me is kind of representative of like, all right, is this strategy like earning me more points or do I need to try a different strategy? Um, and it's just really challenging. It's it's actually I, – I wouldn't have expected this going into it, but it's just really hard to keep a consistent form on a lift and being able to do that over a period of time because like eventually – your body tries to make adjustments to like be lazier and like make it easier. And so you get this form drift over time. Um, so yeah, for whatever reason, like those same things have really kind of grabbed a hold of me there. So uh, I think the challenge for me now is I just have to figure out how to take both of these hobbies that I love and figure out how to make them both work and get the time in so i think you already had the solution there because don't you own gloomhaven can't you use that for powerlifting <laughs> yeah that's a good point i have gloomhaven and negative between those two games that's like 40 50 pounds right there <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> yeah exactly that's awesome john yeah the other thing that my wife and i have done recently is opened up marvel legendary again so we used to play this game a ton in the past and we've been playing a little more sparingly now, but with the recent release of Marvel Avengers Infinity Wars, and don't worry, I'm not going to say any spoilers on this. I'm, I'm just going to talk about playing Marvel Legendary. Um, we decided to break that out and go up against Thanos in that game, and that was that was really fun. So I'm hoping to continue playing this game with my wife. So we've we've enjoyed it quite a bit, and it's I don't know, it's just a fun deck builder. We play it fully cooperative. We always play with one of the variant rules where you have to hit the the mastermind additional time used to be called final blow and as a new card in the deck to you i can't think of the name offhand but there's so many little knobs you can tweak and adjustments you can make and with all the content out there there's you'll never play the same game twice it's a lot of fun yeah you know that's actually one game that my wife and i do enjoy playing i think that's that's a game where you can just sit down you can run through some cards there's some decisions there and how you build out your deck and you're trying to find combos and make those combos work. It's yeah, it's, it's good. I, I think that game definitely hits it, hit its mark, uh, with two players with three. I think you can still make it work with four and the higher player count. It just, 
I think it, it starts to bog down a little bit. Um, I would still I would still play it with four people who were really into it, but for new players, you might want to be careful about that. I'm really glad you said something about that. I actually think the game is best at two as well. And I think the game needs rules modifications at three, four, and five. Yeah. In fact, I actually have some house rules I use for that where we don't reveal the villain cards right away. So you still have the same same ability to start your deck your, your deck engine moving the same rate as it was a two-player game as you would a five-player game. And since we've played this way, if it runs a lot better. And I kind of wish they would revisit the rules and kind of make that tweak officially. Yeah, and I think the other thing they need to do too is they need to expand out the, the hero row for higher player counts. Because like the other thing that I think is a little bit harder, and maybe this is why it's a little more difficult, is like at two players, both of you can really focus on a strategy with, with a little bit more ease. Because like if there's a card out there you really want, you can say, look, take that card if you want, but just so you know, that is going to work awesome with those two other cards that I just previously grabbed. Whereas when it's in a four or five player game, you know, like there's a chance that somebody else is trying that same strategy or or there's the chance that there's no better card for them to pick. So they're just going to grab your card. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I've just seen some things like that kind of happen in that game. Yeah, I don't think they can increase the hero row count because that's going to affect the schemes, which dictate how the game is played, essentially. Yep. But I have observed the same phenomenon where... It's best if you can say, you know what, that one card's great for me, and then they can your teammate can help help keep that in the, the row for you to really build up your deck and kind of work on those combos. Otherwise, you're kind of uh, at the mercy of the card flips. You're kind of top decking almost a little bit or hoping there's another good card that comes out to help you out. Uh, it's doable. It's not a huge deal, but that's definitely a factor. Yeah, for sure. I totally forgot about that scheme thing, too. There might even be some masterminds, too, that, that do stuff with the heroes that would, that would throw that off as well. And, yeah, I mean, I was just trying to spitball. It's almost like with, with four or five players, you, you need something to have a little bit more decision power over those hero cards. And I think at two players, it's a little bit easier to get that decision, that decision space uh, aligned. Yep. Cool. So that's enough of recently played games. Let's move on to some of the news. So we have quite a bit of news to cover. And let's start off with some superhero news, because that seems like a perfect tie-in to what we just discussed. So I want to talk about a new game. It's on Kickstarter right now, and this is Hellboy the Board Game. This is a one-to-four player game, and this is inspired by the comics. So not necessarily by the movies, but by the comics. So what you do is you play as a member of the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. And these are the four main characters in the comics. You have Hellboy, of course, Abe Sapien, Liz Sherman, and Johan Kraus. And it's kind of an interesting game. Uh, you will spend money to equip these heroes with various items. So missions start by opening up a reading a case file, which sets the scene and kind of gives you hints on how to start the game, where, where you might want to go. Uh, what's interesting about it is you need to balance gathering info about the monster you're trying to hunt because every each one of these missions is trying to capture or take down a monster that has escaped into the real world. But the problem is you can't spend all your time investigating the monster, finding his weakness, because there's also uh, the potential that 
all of humanity might might fall if you spend too much time doing that. So it's a little bit of a balance there going on. Like, do you do you wait and you rush in, and hopefully you can catch this monster off guard, but you have no idea how to what its weaknesses are, how to how to approach it, or do you take your time and have a really good idea how to take it down? But now the this doom track is really close to the end end of the world. So it sounds kind of cool. It does sound kind of cool, man. It's, I'm I'm looking at it. Who that that price tag is up there on that game? Oh man. Oh, it is. It's not cheap. Um, it's over a million dollars right now on funding. So that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, they also added a what they call Deck of Doom, and this adds events and variety to each mission. So this actually lets you replay missions without being samey because. Obviously, the first time you play one of these case missions, it's going to be the best experience because you just don't know what's going on. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what enemies you're going to face. But after you play it once, you kind of have an idea what's going to happen. So adding this deck of doom will help with that. But like I said, you you win by defeating this, this big adversary. But the other thing they've added is there's an expansion you could buy that lets you build your own game. So you get to have a deck of cards and you can mix and match uh, the the map layout, some some of the the case file information, and a, a random adversary too, and you can even play where you don't know what the adversary is, so it still has that uh, discovery feeling around it. Yeah, dude, this this game is screaming you, Steve. You got to jump on this thing, and don't forget, you got to get that three D scenery, those three D doors, those add ons. <laughs> oh There's... yeah, man. There is so much you can buy for this game right now. If you look at the campaign page, there's a ton of content on there. It just scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. So, and this was designed by James Hewitt, who did Blood Bowl and Warhammer Quest Silver Tower. So he's got some interesting good games under the, under his belt. Yeah, I mean it. It looks pretty good, and I think if you like those, uh, you know, these style of games, like if you, I, this would almost kind of be a dungeon crawler kind of game to it um you know there's like some things that just remind me of other dungeon crawlers i played out there and yeah i think if you really like those games this actually seems like a decent one and the ip is good and a lot of times there's always that fear that they put that ip on it and that's the only thing they care about and they rush that game out because that ip license expires too quickly but but it looks like they actually did some work on this game design it and it looks like it's going to get some love. So yeah, that's uh, Hellboy the board game. It's currently funded, and the campaign ends May 25th. The next game we'll talk about is City of Kings Ancient Allies. So this is actually a expansion that's coming out for City of Kings, which is already out. This City of Kings had a, a Kickstarter back, back in the day already, but this one is adding more goodness, really. <laughs> so you get... More enemies you can randomly generate, more map tiles, uh, there's more heroes, there's more, yeah, more everything. If you have City of Kings, this seems like a no-brainer. I was going to say, if you already got the game, more goodness, that's exactly what you want, right? Exactly. And, and yeah, I have I have City of Kings. It is all unpunched, ready to be played. Sadly, it hasn't been played, but but the cool thing is how you have a lot of decisions with your characters and what you get to do with them. So a lot of games that might be more dungeon crawler-y or adventure style games, they they tend to abstract 
a lot of your character development and a lot of like how your character gets built out. This game instead kind of reverses that. They're like, no, we want you to take a character that you like and we want you to be able to build it up with the skill sets and the changes that you want in a character. So there's all kinds of things that that you get to do <clears throat> and that you get to focus on which with each character uh, as you play them out. So uh, there's some there's some cool things that this game does. It's not I, I don't imagine that if you play a lot of dungeon crawlers and adventure style games that this one would feel very samey to you. I completely agree. I feel like the addition of workers in this game to go out and gather resources was pretty novel in what you consider a dungeon crawl slash adventure game. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the City of Kings Ancient Allies, and it's already funded, and the campaign will end May 17th. Yep, ending soon. Get in there. Now, we've been talking about some Kickstarters, and Steve, I gotta throw one on your listeners, okay? You, you can't invite a heavy gamer on your podcast and expect them not to talk about some heavy gaming news, all right? So let's talk about Tales of the Northlands, the sagas of Nog and the Nog. It's, it's quite a mouthful to, to say this title, uh, which is probably one of the things that isn't helping this Kickstarter at all. Uh, but for those of you that are across the pond and uh, watch the TV show on BBC... You might be interested in this game. You might want to check it out. Um, I think there's a couple interesting things that are going with this game. So it's a heavy Euro um, competitive strategy game. Well, all right. Heavy, I guess, is in quotes. We don't technically know yet kind of how um, heavy this game is really going to be. There's been some prototypes out there that people have been playing, but I think really you have to get your hands on with a game and really experience it experience it to kind of judge it on its weight so we'll have to see how that all that plays out but a couple interesting things about it um, i think it has a little bit of a sillier theme to it which you don't often see in heavier heavier strategy games um, it is not the typical trading in the mediterranean that uh, i think a lot of euro games just get blasted for um, and the other thing i want to point out is it's got this uh, rondel mechanism for the turn order. So you you know a lot of times when you have rondel mechanisms in, in Euro games, you're using that rondel to kind of mix up, um, you know maybe resources that you're gathering or uh, buildings that you can build and how you take different actions. Or sometimes rondels are even used to determine what resources are going to be available to players. And as something moves around that rondelle it changes in this case it's it's purely for turn order so what's cool is you take actions out on the game board those actions have a certain weight to them so they have like a number right one two three four that kind of thing when you take an action that has a higher number you're going to move further along that rondelle and turn order is based on who is furthest back on that rondelle so this creates some interesting interesting decisions where do i want to take that really powerful action because if i do i'm going to jump ahead of the pack and now they can potentially take multiple actions while i'm sitting here doing nothing or do i want to take a smaller action so i can get to go a lot sooner and i think adding that decision space into a game can lead to very um, interesting strategies and 
and tough, meaty decisions that you have to think through. So I think it's worth mentioning, too, to our listeners that this game is looking like it will have a solo mode as well, a solo variant to the standard rules. Yeah, we still have to wait and see if that's going to play out. I thought I actually heard a rumor on that, too, from somebody in the media community um, that this game would have a solo to it. So it sounds like they may commit to it. Um, It's still got 26 days to go and only about $30,000 collected. So it has met its funding goal, but it's a low amount of money. So, of course, the fear is that you know if you don't have a lot of backers and you don't have a lot of money coming in for your project, you may not invest a lot of time on other things like a solo variant or something like that. But um, but he did put it on the page, so it looks like he's looks like Nick Case, the designer, is going to be committing to it. Um, so yeah, that is Tales of the Northlands, the sagas. Of Nog and the Nog. So the next game we'll talk about is a game called Streets of Steel, that side-scrolling beat-em-up board game. So this is a fully cooperative game for one to four players, and it's totally based on those classic side-scrolling arcade games like Turtles, Back in Time, and what's the other one? Streets of Rage, man. I played that game with my brother. Oh man, hours and hours. That was a that was a great side scroller. Oh yeah, so this is definitely tapping into that nostalgia feeling. So it definitely has that uh, that side scroll look. You can play your heroes. You got some some bad guys to beat up. Looks like it's kind of your standard dice chucking, move along a board, beat up a boss game. The game is a little short of its goal. Yeah, so looks like it's got some miniatures. Uh, some of the miniatures are actually you know looking pretty decent. They're not bad. I do like how they give you those little. Um, uh, I don't know what they call them, the little slip-ons that you put at the base of the mini. So um, you can quickly see which your, which characters are yours. Uh, for a game like this where you're probably going to be moving at a little bit of a faster pace, that's going to be nice. And I don't know, man, if, if they do the side-scrolling thing right, where you know bad guys keep coming on and you, you keep have challenges that you can fight through, it could be kind of cool. Um, it also potentially carries that fear that it could get a little old um you know if you're just continuing just beating up baddies with not a whole lot new going on so uh hopefully the designers are trying to figure out a way to keep it feeling new and fresh and um in the game moving at the right kind of clip i think if they do that you know it could turn out pretty good it does seem a little steep in price for this type of game i'd expect i mean it's 60 dollars you do get a good number of minis, so I'm sure that's a factor in that cost. Yeah, I would think so. Um, yeah, $60, and it's only the pledge level. It is kind of nice that this is a very simplistic campaign. You just back it, and you get it. You don't have to worry about like you know uh, all kinds of add-ons. They do have some add-ons, but they're not. It doesn't look like they're focusing very heavily on it. So um, I can at least appreciate that because. Every once in a while you hit one of those campaigns that you really want, but it has like 10 different pledge levels and 20 different add-ons, and uh, you're just like, man, I'm over this. Yeah, so that was Streets of Steel, the side-scrolling beat-em-up board game. It's a little short of its funding goal right now, but it's 29 days to go, and it's going to finish its funding June 7th. The next game we'll talk about is Castle Von Logan. It is a cooperative exploration game for one to six players. This is a little bit of a different spin on games. It is kind of like a dungeon crawl, but it's all about time. So you are heading through a castle 
and there are up to 200 events. Try and gather loot, trying to rescue time itself. So what happens is the game board will transform as you progress through it. You have three different timelines with three different boards and map tiles. So there's two game modes where you can do a co-op story mode where you delve into the, the lore of it. And another one, which is exploration mode, which is more of a dungeon crawl, monster slashing, beat em up game where you can actually play it competitive as well. They call it competitive co-op experience where you can lose together, but you are trying to see who gets the most points, essentially. Yeah, this actually looks pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and they do mention uh, right away, too, about the diceless combat, which is naturally piquing my interest a little bit. Um, and I, this actually looks like it's a pretty well-run Kickstarter, too. I love how when they're trying to talk about the game and different game elements, they got the GIFs that are that are running right, right along to kind of show you what you're doing. Um, yeah, it, it looks interesting. Uh, it's it's uh, they do have a little bit of a high pledge goal from where they're at now, so they're at about twenty four thousand, and they need to hit almost uh, well forty forty one thousand and a half, um, and only four hundred thirteen backers. But there is twenty three days to go, so there's there's still some hope there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You do move together as a party in this game, as opposed to individual. And when you do gather loot and beat beat these uh, encounters. Uh, you can actually bid on what who gets the first first dibs grabbing loot based upon how much you contribute to that encounter. Seems kind of cool. It's kind of nice seeing a refreshing spin on things, being a a time based game as opposed to your normal dungeon crawl. But yeah, if you're interested, check this out on Kickstarter. That was Castle von Logan, but Underground Games campaign ends June second. The next game we'll talk about is Exo Mankind Reborn board game. This is also a cooperative survival game. You just had to put this one on the list, didn't you, Steve? I did. This one seems right down John's alley, I must admit. So it's one to four players, and it you play campaigns. There's I think there's two different campaigns, one for one to two players and another one for three to four players, if I understand this correctly. But this is more of a resource management Euro game in a cooperative form. So the premise is there was an energy crisis, basically, and all of humanity uh, had to go underground to, to survive. And so we've been underground for centuries, but now that we've been underground so long, our resources are being depleted. So they're sending up some heroes or some survivors up to the surface to gather resources and get what we need to have humanity continue surviving. But after these centuries of being underground, creatures have evolved and there's different environments out there that you have to interact with. So it's not the same world we knew of in the past. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, too, that they have... So, you know, you are you play these humans, and then you also have these... Uh, what do they call them? Uh, Exo-animals that, that you have almost like a companion with your human. And it looks like you're determining what actions you want to take with your heroes, but also what actions you want to take with your ex-animals. Exo-animals, sorry. Which... Uh, could could be rather interesting. Yeah, so the miniatures have your human form and animal form as in one base, but it's not combined. You can actually pull out these the animal and the human independent of it. And so you can control them independently on the board as well. And basically what they're trying to do if I understand things is your your animal winds up being a mule. 
to carry these resources back to wherever you need to take them. So it's got a little bit of that um, that worker placement almost feel where you have to pick up resources and bring them back. Yeah, one thing about me that I've never quite fully understood, but I really love survival themes and I really love when they take survival themes and do something really interesting with it and create a very unique and, and creative world. Um, there's There's been some other games. Anachrony uh, is another game that also did this did a similar thing that I really, really liked. So, uh, yeah, this could be really cool. And then it's, instead of it, you know, um, being a, a strategy game where you're focused on resource management and what you do with those resources to, to continue to further your objectives, you got to work together cooperatively. So, yeah, there's some, there's some interesting elements going on here. There are dice in the game, but the dice is only for controlling weather elements. I don't think, well, I can tell, there's combat that with dice in this. I think it's all fairly Euro in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it looks like you're kind of fighting the world, right? So you're you're basically trying to survive. So it doesn't look like there's going to be a whole lot of uh, com- combat. Um, and exactly. Yeah I, I, yeah, I read that too. Basically, there's disasters, and so you roll for weather, and you roll for, looks like you might even roll for some fauna. Um, and then that'll be about it. And you lose the game if any one of these heroes uh, die. So it's all about trying to work together and get those resources you need to survive. So that was XO, Mankind Reborn board game. It is currently funded and looks like it's going campaign continues until May 23rd. Yeah, and it's funded pretty well too. So uh, best of luck to them. And thanks, Steve. I put that on my save list now. You're welcome. <laughs> That's what we do to each other in this hobby, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's one more game I want to mention, and that is Detective, a modern crime board game. So this one is not on Kickstarter, but is open for pre-order. So Portal Games has done their own pre-order system that helps them save a little bit of money, so you can go directly to their site. But this is a one-to-five-player, fully cooperative crime-solving game. What's interesting about this one is you have crimes to solve, and... It's not replayable because once you know the solution, the, the you can't really replay it, unfortunately. But it all, takes the meta to another level. And what I mean by that is you will be playing this game and you can use any resource at your disposal to help solve these crimes. And that means the internet. You can literally go out and Google and read, read documents, do whatever research you need to figure out how to solve these mysteries. That in of itself really got my got me interested in this type of game. I think that's a really cool concept. If it works, and if they can really make these detective experiences um, interesting enough and challenging enough, that this could be pretty cool. And and the really cool part of it is if they actually do figure out how to pull in some things from the real world into it. So that when users are trying to go out there and figure it out and they Google something and happen upon something that looks like it can be a clue for what they're solving, if they actually could figure that out, that would that would be very, uh, very unique for a gaming experience. Oh, I agree. And it'd be kind of fun, too, to put red herrings out there because, you know, people are going to be Googling for this stuff. Right. right. And you could have like have them go to the wrong location, like really mess them up a little bit. That'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> So yeah, one one other thing let's mention really quick is uh, so with the Portal game pre-orders, they started doing some interesting things where they would pull in 
things that you would normally see in a Kickstarter into their pre-order process. So if you do pre-order the game, you do get some promos uh, for part of that. And I'm not sure, I can't remember if they've actually released those for the other games that they've done this with. So, you know, if you can get them outside of the pre-order or not. But um, but you do get some promos for, for pre-ordering early. The other thing they do, too, is they keep track of the number of pre-orders. And as they hit certain numbers of the pre-orders, they'll unlock uh, additional content for the game. So there is there is some kind of an incentive system there to try to get more people to come in and pre-order it. Um, and then the other thing is they they usually, for these pre-orders, they have a limited quantity that they do for their print runs, too. So uh, right now it's set to 1,000. I don't know how long this has been out, but if you're interested, you know, you might you might want to jump on it before they hit that 1000. And it looks like the pre-order system if they don't hit the 1000 might go into early June, maybe around June 5th is when this will end. So that was Detective, a modern crime board game. Okay, so that's kind of the news. Let's um let's jump into our discussion topic. So, as we alluded to earlier, John is kind of our heavy connoisseur, so I figured let's talk about heavy board games. So, heavy wait. connoisseur, are you calling me fat? Is that what you're trying to say about <laughs> me, Steve? I think I fit that description between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. There has been that running joke. Like, actually, I I posted a geek list on Board Game Geek a while back, and, and like my one friend just like read the title. I think it was Howard who read that title and he just like gave me endless amounts of, of guff over that title, which, which I enjoy. Um, but, but yeah, so as I mentioned earlier on, I do enjoy, um, heavier games. And so I think for this conversation, what I like to do is I kind of like to start off with my definition and also tell everybody about what has fed my definition and what has fed my heavier interests over time and kind of talk about that a little bit and give you all some foundation for where I'm coming from. Cause otherwise if I just start jumping into it, um, you know, we, we might be all over the place and, and I think it helps to have some common understanding of, of where I'm coming from. So, uh, let's jump into that. And yeah, I think Steve, what I'm going to do is I'll give my definition. You can jump in with yours and then We'll uh, we'll see kind of see where this conversation goes, but I think it's good for us to kind of talk about our definitions, break them down a little bit, and then let the conversation go from there because I think it'll it'll definitely help. And uh, actually, what I'm hoping you do is I'm hoping that you can pick apart mine and, and call me out for things because I really I I really want the, these concepts to be challenged and discussed. That's that's kind of why I'm here. So, okay, so definition. Uh, of great density, thick or substantial decision space a game gives players that requires meaningful decisions and is a challenge to overcome. And I did build that a little bit off of your typical uh, dictionary definition of the word heavy, but I also kind of added my thoughts to it. So of great density, thick or substantial decision space a game gives players that requires meaningful decisions and is a challenge to overcome. Yeah, that's interesting, the definition. I think I could probably agree with that. I've taken a little bit of a different approach on how I interpret heavy. Uh, so heavy, when used in the board game community, generally 
is used to describe mental well how I think about it is mental fatigue is how I how I view it. So what that means is gonna be subjective and different to to each each person. So for example, if you have trouble with spatial manipulation in your mind, maybe that would be a factor to what would cause a game to be be heavy in your mind. So for me, the definition of heavy it's pretty subjective, but whatever it is, it, it applies um, mental fatigue. And, and generally, that, for me at least, means decisions that must be made in advance, multiple turns in advance, that you have to maintain and pursue through the course of playing a game. Yeah, I think I could agree with that. Um, and in fact, that's another thing that I want to mention too. So what is heavy to me um, might be just extremely heavy to you or what's heavy to me might not be heavy to you like somebody who is really into advanced squad leader might look at some of the games i play and just go that's heavy okay you know like there's the there's definitely some subjectivity here and that was one of the reasons for building the definition that i did i was trying to push myself to see if i could come up with an objective way to define heaviness that a broad set of gamers could use to basically, you know, apply their own definition and their own uh, thought process to, to this term heavy, right? So something that could kind of apply across the board because substantial decision space is going to vary among players, right? So Agreed. Um, you know, you, you have somebody, maybe a, a newer gamer who comes in and they'll sit down and play a game like Pandemic and say, whoa, you know, and it just blows them away. Um, and, and that's like an incredibly heavy game to them, right? Whereas, you know, I might look at Pandemic and to me that might be more of a medium kind of a weight game. And, you know, there might be heavier co-ops out there that I've played. So so I think it's, it's very much, uh, there's a lot of subjectivity here. There's a lot of personal experiences here. And there's a lot of you know, your own personal desires and interests that kind of feed into this. Um, so that's that's something that I think is very important to note because if I say a game is heavy or if I say a game is light, that is purely based on my personal experiences and my personal thought processes. I'm not trying to say that like, oh, look at you, little weak-minded person playing that light game. Like, it's not about that. It's just about you trying to give you an understanding of, you know, what like what my personal tastes are and, and how I define that. Yeah, I'll even throw a wrench a little bit into that where I was in the game store and I can't remember how this came up, but I was talking to someone near, nearby who's also looking at games and shopping and they were looking at a few games, asked me a few questions and said, hey, well, any any games you'd recommend? And, I mean, I don't know this person, so I was looking at what was in front of us. I'm like, yeah, this King of Tokyo game, this is pretty popular. It's a pretty good game. A lot of people like it. I, I recommend that. And they picked up, looked in the box, and they looked over, and they literally just looked at the, the component count and saw how many cards were in the box and assumed that to be a measurement of heaviness and said, nope, that's that's too many things in this box. And he put it down and walked away for a different game at the time. So that was that kind of opened my mind a little bit, like, wow, can can components, the amount of content in the game correlate to heaviness in some way i'm personally i don't i don't think so from a personal experience here but i can see others maybe interpreting it that way yeah actually this is a really great uh segue into talking about what what things made up 
what things helped us create our definitions, what things fed our definitions. And, and I guess I called them factors. So the way I would describe that, like if you said, okay, John, how do you determine that this game is heavy and this game is not, or, or this game is medium weight and this game is heavyweight. And, and to me, it's like, I've got some factors that I kind of thought through. And I did try to think about these in terms of how much <laughs> how much weight I give them. So so in other words, like I'm gonna just go in order. I'm just gonna read you through my list, and then uh, just know that the things at the end of that list I pay I I tend to pay a little bit less attention to. And these change over time, right? So like some of this stuff may have flip flopped back in the day, and I don't know. But but in any case. Um, the things that make up uh, how we define a game's weight or heaviness to me is complexity of decisions, depth of strategy, um, puzzle discovery, and if you have questions about these, we can get into these. Uh, decision importance, rules, the number of decisions that you might have in a given turn or a given round, game length, randomness, and luck. So those are kind of the factors, and I actually didn't think about number of components, but if I did, I might have put that on there, and I probably would have left it more towards the end, but quite honestly, I I think it's a factor. Now, is it a big factor? Probably. For me, I don't think it is, but but certainly if you put down Mega Civ in front of a board gamer and you put down... Um, I'm <laughs> trying to think of another game off the top of my head. But yeah, if you put down like... Love Mega- letter. <laughs> yeah, sure, exactly. You put down Megasiv in front of a, a user and or a gamer and, and Love Letter, they're probably going to tell you that Megasiv is a heavier game in, in terms of its its weight and, and how we use this term heavy in the community, right? Like, I think that would be natural. I would agree with that too, yeah. And I I think it does have a factor, but I don't... For me, it's not a, a deciding factor with the number of components. I think there's there's definitely something to go with by streamlining, of course, right? Is, is streamlining the opposite of heaviness? I, I don't think it is necessarily. So that's why I don't think components have a direct correlation with this heavy term, per se. Yeah, like the way I would kind of almost think about it is like, uh, for those of us that are more mathy, which normally I'm not, but I think this is a good way to think about it. Like all of these factors are variables in your formula. And when you run them through the formula, what you get on the output side of things is a weight, right? And so I think, I think something like components could be a factor. It's probably just going to be a small factor, right? Yep. Like it's, it's probably not going to make a big decision in terms of like, for me, I don't think it makes a big decision because I'm kind of with you. Like if a game takes me 10 minutes to punch or an hour to punch, to me, like it's just the board game. Some board games have more components than others. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I again, I think that you can still make the claim based on component size that one game is probably going to be heavier than another game. It, it may not always work, but it, but I think that there are some generalities you can you can you can discuss there. To me, I think some of the bigger things, uh, the things that that really make up a, a game's weight to me. Um, that I give a lot of importance to is the complexity of decisions, 
the depth of strategy, puzzle discovery, um, how important do your decisions feel to you? So in other words, like if you develop a strategy in a game and then, um, yeah, yeah, and maybe this is where kind of randomness becomes a factor, but if, if you make decisions in a game and you develop a strategy and then some external force uh, completely uh, destroy, destroys that strategy for you, like mid-strategy, um, to me, I think that can be an, uh, a factor of weight. I don't think it necessarily means that the game is automatically a lighter game, but I guess what I'm getting at there is that if your decisions matter in a game and you really have to think through it and you have to put a lot of effort into that strategy, that strategy starts to, to matter more and its level of importance comes up. Because if the strategy you're developing isn't important at all and something can just wash it away, then um, to me it, 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 it's a factor because it's kind of taking you away from that uh, strategic experience and all the thought process that you have to put into a game. So I'm going to disagree a little bit on that point. Okay. Um, because I think that while you could have some, some depth in your strategy and have a plan going forward, some random event occurs... It doesn't, to me, you would have to re- reconsider your, your strategy or your, your plans or what what decisions you have to make. So that is, instead of taking away decisions, I see that as compiling on decisions because you're now having to go through the whole decision process again, which is adding more of that mental fatigue, which is how I described it earlier. Right. And I, I can actually agree I can actually agree to, to parts of that, um, especially if you look at co-op games, right? Like uh, co-op games have to have there has to be uh, there almost has to be some kind of random element to a co-op game. Otherwise, what is the driving force that you're all working together and what creates the challenge there, right? So uh, specifically, if we talk about co-op games, I think you have to have the randomness there and I think, there are elements of randomness, like you say, um, that can really affect your decision space and can really make it interesting. Um, so, for example, like one co-op game that I really enjoy is Freedom, the Underground Railroad. And there is a lot of control that you get in that game, but there is also um, the slave catchers that can come in and try to completely disrupt your plans. And you can even develop a strategy, right? Like you'll sit down as players and say, okay, you're going to use these actions. I'm going to use these actions. I'm going to buy that card. You could buy that card. Those would be great for us. And we can move these people up here to the north. So you you can roll those dice. And then those slave catchers, instead of zigging, they zag, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, now I closed off this route and I can't do this thing and I have to do this instead. So I totally get where you're coming from. Um, I think it can be a factor to me. I think randomness, if done right, can be a really good thing and can definitely add to the to your decisions and your strategies in the games. But I think there can also be moments in games where it can definitely take away from all of that. And and now you just feel like you're at the whim of some alternate universe force that's acting upon you. And, and that's where I think your decisions start to matter less. And to me, that that's a factor that's important to me. So, you know, I would judge that game differently. Right, right wrong, or indifferent, that's the way I come at it, you know? Yep. And I would, I would agree to that to an extent, too, because like I said earlier in this podcast, 
how I thought Fortune Glory had too much luck for my taste. I mean, if you were to have too much luck in a board game design, I would agree that those decisions would matter less and you would spend less time thinking about them, less mental fatigue because, you know what, this is going to change in the future in a short period of time. It's going to change again and again and again and again and again. Well, well, I'm not going to put as much effort into these decisions. Yeah, and and it also gets interesting too. Like, so you know, now I'm now I'm walking all over my own definition and the factors that I built upon. But but then you ha- you can take a game like Eldritch Horror, where I would say that there's a lot of luck and randomness in that game. But but that still is somewhat of a meaty game. So that's the one game where I really struggle with figuring out where to place it. Um, and, and again, when I start off with like complexity decisions and depth of strategy, I struggle putting that game on the higher weight of, of let's, let's call it like a distribution, you know, or some kind of scale. I struggle putting it up towards the higher end because I feel like there can be a lot of moments in that game and there can just be a lot of games you play in general where you feel like there was never any hope from the get go. And every, like, again, you had this, like, universal force that was like, I want you to lose and I want you to be miserable, you know? <laughs> so so I've had some games of Eldritch Horror that have played out that way. But then I've had other games of Eldritch Horror where you're, like, right there on the cusp. You're almost going to win. You know, you're so close. And you're, you're it's like coming down to die rolls, you know? And you're just, like, you're just inching along and you're almost there. And then that game suddenly it suddenly feels like your decisions made a difference in that game, you know? So that that's the one where I'm just like, I have no clue how to place it. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe that's a cop out. Um, but, but yeah, like I think there can also be games that have very low randomness and very low luck and can still have tons of interesting decisions and can be very, very challenging. And I would put most of the uh, splatters spell in, design games into that category um since you guys are co-op and solo you might not have a lot of your uh listeners that have played those games because they tend to be very competitive um and uh they can also be very mean and nasty games and and sometimes people who play co-op games don't enjoy being mean and competitive to the person across the table but i i will say if you have solo gamers who listen to your podcast they have to at some point go out and play roads and boats. You, you just you you have to get that game played. Um, and the, there's a couple of cool things about it. Normally, that's a very long game to play when you're playing the competitive version. The solo version flies. It goes really quick. I think my learning game of that was barely over an hour. It certainly wasn't more than an hour and a half. And then when I, I immediately played a second game. And I got it done between 30 and 40 minutes. I mean, it just flies and it's it's full of really meaty decisions. and It's kind of like a logistical puzzle, how you move things around and get them to the right place at the right time so that you, you continue to see your civilization thrive and grow. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it, it's going to be a mixed bag, I think, with your viewership if they're going to like those games or not. Um, but... But those are games that I think we have to mention just because they're, they usually, the designers usually try to design them with very low randomness and luck and, and high amounts of strategic decisions. 
You forgot to mention the the best part about roads and boats, the fact that you can turn geese into technology. Gosh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, they have a couple fun things like that. <laughs> Just the fact that they have geese in that game. How many board games do you play that have geese? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did enjoy that game. I do like my 4X game, so that, that tickled my funny bone when we played that uh, back in the day. So, But um, I do want to elaborate a little bit on this randomness and luck discussion when it comes to heaviness because i'm wondering like how much a factor that could be because what if you think about something like go for example which arguably has no no randomness and no luck in that regard because you're just one versus one playing a person does that have a lot of heaviness to you would that can would you consider that a heavy game man i i really wish i've played go oh cause... fine let's start let's take chess or something okay, for example okay yeah, maybe maybe chess is uh, a good a good game to talk about, and there's there's probably a lot of abstracts that kind of fall into this category too, right? Um, yeah, so to me, to me, chess um, is chess is probably a little bit of a hard game to place because what matters a lot in that game is the skill level of the players involved. And that really creates a lot of variability in how the game will play out, right? So in other words, so in, uh, people may not know this, but there's like a whole chess federation out there uh, where they have tournaments that are um, tournaments that are basically registered to the to the chess federation, and players can can play, and players get rated based on how they perform in those tournaments, and they generally use ratings to try and pair people together for tournaments and they also use the ratings to help you as a player know where you should be placing yourself in the tournament so in other words like if you're a 700 level chess player you may not want to go play in the open tournament uh, because you're going to be potentially paired up against a grandmaster who's just going to mop the floor with you right so so the, the here this is where it gets interesting with it with abstract games and, and specifically with chess where like Okay, so if you take a 700 ranked player and play him against a grandmaster, that 700 ranked player may feel like his decisions were completely meaningless in that game. And the, the game could actually come across feeling like a waste of time in a very lightweight game in terms of strategy. But in reality, what they just don't know is that this grandmaster probably knows all the strategies that they're thinking of because there's so many... There's so many layers to the game of chess, and the more you understand that those layers to that game, the more it it opens up in terms of different strategies you can take and different options available to you. Not to mention the fact that like there is some randomness in the game. There's the randomness of the player, right? So like the the player could go completely off a normal defined strategy and do something that's completely out of the blue. And they could be doing it to throw off the player on the other side of the table, or they could just be doing it because they don't know what they're doing, or they could be doing it because they just think it's the right decision at the right time, right? Um, so so there's you, you can't have some randomness there. But anyway, I guess I'm saying all this to say that like if you take two grandmasters, I think grandmasters using these definitions would probably weight the game of chess pretty high. And they would weight it pretty high because, again, if you understand all the all those different layers of chess and all those different strategies that are out there, the, like the game just completely opens up to you. 
and there's so many different things that can happen and so many different variables that you have to account for because there's so many different strategies out there that players can play. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it, it depends on a lot of factors there. Yeah, I would, I can agree with you. And that's why I kind of brought that up as an example where randomness and luck may have a factor into weight, but I think there's some other things that tie into that as well. Like you suggested skill and familiarity with the game that really opens up avenues. And I think another example that would be interesting to discuss is something like a living card game or a miniature game or really any other game that where you have to do something outside the game, outside of actually playing the game, that has a factor to to this heaviness. At least in my opinion, it would. Yeah, I think LCGs are actually a really good, a really interesting thing to talk about here with game weight. And I'll even throw out... Uh, a really interesting existential question for your viewership does does an lcg base game is an lcg base game lighter than an lcg game that's been out for a couple years that now has all these expansion packs and all this other content that's that now comes along with it so take lord of the rings for example um is lord of the rings now heavier than just lord of the rings base game and I think it. I think the same question can work across um, multiple different LCGs, even miniature games like you mentioned. Like you mentioned, if you get a miniature game that has a starter pack with four four races, but then they add two new races that now have all these other abilities to them. To me, I think there is a factor there of game weight, and I think a game like Lord of the Rings is way heavier when you take all of that stuff into consideration than it is just just starting out by itself. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that same concept still applies to what we consider like the normal board games, where if you start adding a lot of expansion to it, I do think that would ratchet up the heaviness or ratchet it further along the heavier category in the most most cases. Yep. Yeah, I agree. The, the one factor that I had in my list uh, that can also... <laughs> can also throw my own decisions here for a loop is rules. So normally I'm inclined to say if you're if you have more rules in a game, you probably have more uh, heaviness with that game. Uh, just as like a general concept. It doesn't always work, but I think for the most part it works because again you can take a look at a game like Love Letter and you can take a look at a game Mage Knight. Uh, yeah, sure, Mage Knight, right? Like, there's way more things that you are doing in Mage Knight. There's way more decisions you have to make. And there's all these different cards and all these different combos that you're trying to pull off. And uh, as you gain new cards, you gain new abilities. Yeah, to to me, to me, like, there's, there's a big factor there. And yeah, like, the rules of Mage Knight is, like, endless. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty pretty expansive rule book um i don't know if i don't think it always works so for example you can take a splatter game and and this is one of the really interesting things about splatter spelling is that they'll they'll come up with a game design and then they will run it through the ringer i mean they will beat this game up to death to really get it down to its true core in its most simplistic form that they that they can while still trying to keep as much strategy and decision space as possible. So if you look at a game like Food Chain Magnet, it is actually not that complicated of a game to teach 
and it's not that complicated of a game to learn. But to try to master it and figure out how to be good at it is very challenging. Um, so that's a game that kind of flips that that factor that I have on its head. Where, well, well, if you look at most splatter games, most people would kind of rate them not as like the heaviest games in the world, but like usually higher than medium is where most people go. Like most heavy, most gamers who enjoy heavy games are usually. Well, I think they would put a lot of the splatter games to like the medium heavy category somewhere in there. Um, but, but yeah, those games don't usually have a lot of rules to them. They're usually pretty easy to pick up. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think rules can have a factor, but if you do a good job streamlining it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't really be a significant contributor. The the other one that I, that I really like is uh puzzle discovery. I think it's a little bit hard to define and it is very subjective. So it's the one, if you have any any listeners who are all about the objective and knowing exactly how to define things, this is where they're going to turn you off and delete your podcast. But, <laughs> but, but puzzle discovery, I think, is like, how, how easy was it to figure out uh, the different aspects of the game? So, so there's a couple things here. One is, how easy was it to grok all the different moving parts of a game and what's going on? And then usually with a lot of games, um, especially like the the more strategic Euro games, there's there's usually this what I would call like an underlying puzzle, and and sometimes there's multiple ones. And if you figure out what they are and you figure out how to unlock them, you you basically have hit on a really good strategy, and you're probably going to do really well in the game and get a lot of points, right? So an example of this would be. Um, Gosh, what's that Uve game that uh, he came out with after Agricola? Caverna? Yeah, Caverna. I can't believe I just forgot that. Uh, so so Caverna, for example, they, they have all these tiles that you can build out on your player board that you can collect over time. But but there's really interesting aspect to them where, where these tiles can, can trigger at different points in the game and different things can like trigger them. But what's really interesting is that you can then trigger stuff together in, in kind of a combo chain. So you you take an action out on the game board and you do something, and then all of a sudden you just you just triggered a whole combo thing. And then you earn a bunch of points. Or you collect a bunch of something that you then turn into a bunch of points. Um, so, so a good example of the puzzle could be trying to figure out what those combos are and trying to figure out how to get them and trying to figure out how to employ them. And once you do, you, you've unlocked that puzzle discovery. And to me, this is kind of important because like in Caverna, um, one of the things that turned me off to that game was that I found a couple of strategies in that game where like the combo was just insane. And I like, you know, I was getting, I, I don't, I don't remember now what a good score in that game is. Uh, Cause it's been so long since I played it, but I mean, it was, like if I played somebody else in that game, I may have doubled their score. And unless they knew that combo and blocked me, it was like unstoppable. So to me, because I found that puzzle very early in my plays of the game, the, my interest in that game started to wane a little bit. And I would also say that if I found out those puzzles early on in my plays of the game and they weren't well hidden or there weren't challenges to get those puzzles and unlock them, I consider that a little bit of a lighter game because suddenly your tactical decisions become easier. Yep, I was just going to ask you that if the game would drop in heaviness if you would solve these puzzles. 
And I would I would agree with that to to an extent. Yeah, maybe another way to phrase this um, to try to relate it to 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 your viewership. Imagine imagine you play a game of unlock or a game of escape, right? And and so you're doing one of these escape rooms. Actually, imagine you just went with a group of your friends and you paid a whole bunch of money to do an escape room thing at an actual site, you know, where they literally lock you in a room, right? Imagine if it took you five minutes to get out of that escape room. You, you would probably be a little miffed, right? Like you would, you would say, well, why did we pay all this money for this hour-long experience? Like this was easy. Who, who designed this thing? And you, you would probably be generating a lot of complaints and trying to have discussions with the people who put that on, right? Versus if you go into escape room where it's incredibly challenging, like you keep pushing yourself, but the game keeps pushing back on you. You can't figure it out. You can't find it out. And you know you only have an hour, so you start to get under the gun. I think that experience becomes more enjoyable, more meaningful. Um, and I think most people would say, like, that was really challenging. They may use the words challenging, complex, uh, difficult, you know. And this is where I kind of tied into a little bit of what I was saying earlier about the mental fatigue and how that's subjective to each individual person, right? Because if the challenges in this escape room were something, let's say, you did for your job, it would become the puzzle become easy, apparent, just to solve. And then you'd, I would imagine, at least perceived to be a lighter a puzzle in that regard. But if it's something you're not familiar with or take a little more time, I agree, you would you would tend to view it as heavier. Yeah, yeah. Fatigue is definitely, a, I think, a really good factor. Um, it's definitely one I didn't think of, and it's one that I would probably add to my list um, because... I think it's also a really good factor to use to determining the weight of a game because fatigue is different for the individual, right? So a game that fatigues one person and is heavy to them isn't necessarily going to fatigue me or vice versa. And I, I think that's a really cool way to say it because it's, it's more meaningful that way, right? Like your game can be heavy for you. My game can be heavy for me, right? Exactly. And I, I do think it's best used when talking about heavy and light games with comparison of other games, because like we've been talking about on this podcast, this is all very subjective, and we're even we're even going back and forth on the definitions. It's really <laughs> really hard to say. Yes, game A is a heavy game, and game B is a, a light game. But it's a lot easier to say, "Hey, game A is heavier than game B." That's a little bit easier to describe. So I I tend to avoid saying heavy and light generally, but I will use it to describe games if we're comparing them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I think what I try to do for things like this where there's subjectivity is I try to think of them like on a continuum, right? So what you can do is you can start to place things on this continuum to help understand, right? And I think this also helps you have a conversation with other people about heaviness because generally speaking, I think we can get people to agree on certain things, right? So I think on one far end of the spectrum or this continuum, you can get people to agree that probably advanced squad leader is very high up on the on the weight scale, right? Um, anybody who's spent two minutes looking into that game, I, <laughs> I, I think would generally agree with that. Um, maybe the people who play ASL would disagree, but, but otherwise, I, I think we mostly can agree to that, right? That there's... There's games like that that are way up there on that on that upper end of the scale. And then you can also 
try to define the lower end of the scale. This can get challenging because especially for people who enjoy games of heavier weight, they may immediately jump and say, well, this game is light um, that somebody else thinks is medium. And then you get into problems of your conversation. But I think in, it don't immediately jump to those first. Go to the very far end of the spectrum, right? I mean, maybe a game like Uno is down there or maybe a game like, uh, um, I don't know. I, I want to say Monopoly. War. But- but yeah, war. I don't even, I don't even know if war is a game, but but let's call it a game because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. So so yeah, we put war at the far end. That's a that's a great one. Or maybe fifty two card pickup is down there at the far end. There you go. <laughs> so so you have these, and now what you can start to do is when you're talking about common games that you share with people, you can say okay. We've, we've agreed to a lower end and a higher end. Now, where do we think these start to fall, right? And then you can take a couple games and compare them. So, you know, you can pull out a Euro game and pull out something else and, and start to talk about where they fall and why. And you can start to say, well, that one's heavier than that. Well, that one's a little bit lighter than that, you know? Yep, I agree. I think the continuum one um, is a good way of describing heavy and light games. It tends to... You have some disagreements, but it's a way of of digging through this subjective discussion. Yeah, I think it's a way to dig through it, and it's a way to try and find common ground. And anytime you can find common ground in a conversation where you're going to have disagreement, it's going to make that conversation easier. Yep, agreed. So we've been talking about this for a while, but I kind of want to wrap this up with a concept that I've or a question I've been thinking about lately. And this is going to relate specifically to cooperative games. So the question I want to ask is, do you consider cooperative games heavy? Or can they be considered heavy, as to say? I feel like you're trying to set me up with your viewership. Like you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to bait me so you can get the pit pitchforks and the torches to come out. Um, I'm gonna post your address in the uh, design of <laughs> the, yeah. the episode notes later so they can come to your house and uh <laughs> This was this was all an hour and a half scheme to dox me in the end. That's all this was it was like an hour and a half troll. That's what this was. Fantastic. Um yeah, so so cooperative games and, and heaviness. Um I think cooperative games can be heavy, but I don't I don't know if it always necessarily applies. And and I think it might be hard to compare a co-op game to like a competitive strategy game. Um I, I think it's gonna get challenging, right? So like if you pulled out Legendary and now you wanted to compare the game weight of Legendary to um Dominion. Yeah, D- Dominion, or you could even say let let's just go to a competitive Euro game straight up, like how would you compare legendary to Russian railroads? I, I think it, it can get a little challenging there. Based on my definition that I came up with and based on my factors that I developed, I do believe you can still apply weight to cooperative games. And I think you can even have cooperative games that are that are at the large end. For whatever reason, my personal opinion here, though, is that I see a lot of publishers that aren't pushing the weight the the weight boundaries of cooperative games for whatever reason um most cooperative games that seem to be coming out seem to fall into this like sweet spot of like medium weight medium complexity 
I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know if they're worried about like like maybe they think cooperative games apply more to a general audience or something, and maybe they're worried that if they go too far on the upper end of the spectrum, they just won't hit that that wider audience, and so they naturally won't make as much money, and it'll cost them more to produce. So they don't want to go down that road. I I don't know why it is, or maybe it's just complete randomness, right? Like maybe maybe they just designed the game and that's it. They didn't think about anything else. Uh, I don't really know the the answer there. I think it's definitely possible to get these heavier cooperative games. Like uh, I think Sword and Sorcery has a decent amount of of weight to it. Um, I think Gloomhaven for me is probably a little bit heavier just because the decisions of how you play those cards and the timing of it is that there's so much going on there. It's, it's way more, there, there's way more complexity revolved around that small hand of cards than, um, than looks at at first glance. Um, but, but freedom, the underground railroad is another game I brought up. I think that is a very challenging game. I think that is a hard game to play well. I think the puzzle of it is hard to figure out, and one of the reasons why that puzzle is so hard to figure out is because it has the little bit of randomness of those slave catchers that really throw things off. So so yeah, I I think that's a game uh, I would weight Freedom the Underground Railroad a little bit higher on the, the weight scale, me personally, but, but yeah, I don't know, I think I could definitely see how somebody could could say like if you talk to a normal heavy gamer that likes euro games i can definitely understand where they're where they're coming from when they say i don't like cooperative games because they're all medium lightweight and it just doesn't hit that sweet spot for me i can totally cope with that because for whatever reason like nine times out of ten i think if you grab a co-op off the shelf um i think a heavier gamer is not gonna find the same depth of strategy and puzzle complexity. So I want to agree to that as well. I think cooperative games can be heavy, and I think Spirit Island is probably one of the better examples with all the depths of decisions on that one. Yeah, that's a great example. I think I agree with you on Gloomhaven, and even Sword and Sorcery has some depth to it. I'm not sure I would necessarily call it heavy per se, but yeah, there, there's a lot going on in that game. So I think they can be considered heavy, but I think inherent in the design of cooperative games they're kind of fighting against what makes games heavy. So just bear with me for a second. I think for a competitive game, you are on your own. You're making all the decisions on your own. All the mental fatigue, I'll go back to that phrase, is on you. In a cooperative game, that mental fatigue can be shared amongst all the players. So I think by default, because it's cooperative, it's going to be harder to reach those heavy levels the same way a competitive game could reach those heavy levels. At least that's... That's how I interpreted it. I can definitely see that. I can definitely see how many components... Actually, I could run down a lot of the items that are on my factor list that I developed for my definition. And, and like you said, a lot of these things are shared across the players. And when they're shared across the players, on an individual player level, you don't have... Uh, it may be a thing of like maybe complexity of decisions is divided by two because there were two players or or it was divided by some number right which now takes away from that formula you're building up to figure out what the weight of a game is yeah that's that's a very interesting point um and i could definitely i could definitely see that 
So yeah, it was interesting. I wanted to bring that up and kind of talk that through. And I thought this heavy discussion would be a good topic while John was on the podcast. But we've been talking forever, so <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up now. Uh, please feel free to send you, us your comments. You can reach us at Twitter at MVP Board Games or Gmail at MVP Board Games at gmail.com. Also, if you have any news or upcoming games you'd like to, us to discuss, that's fair game. Just feel free to share it with us and send it, send it to us. We'll do our best to capture any comments. And join us next week with Mike and Peter as they cover a board game and follow up with a related design discussion. Probably a good idea to get me off the podcast, Steve, because last podcast I did was uh, last podcast I did the podcast series ended <laughs> with me as a guest. So if you keep me on here for too long, you guys run the fear of losing your entire thing that you have going on. In fact, Colin should have just nixed this thing as soon as you said you were bringing me on. That would have been smart <laughs> on his part. <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, though, uh, actually, that really did happen. But, but in all seriousness, uh, thanks for having me on. It was, it was a blast, man. I had a really good time. Um, I loved hearing your thoughts about Game Weight. Uh, I think it changed my thought process a, a little bit. Um, there's definitely some things that I would incorporate going forward. And it was fun to just get back and talk about this hobby. I, I feel like I uh, haven't been able to dedicate a lot of time to it. So this was really good. It was a lot of fun. And I look forward to future opportunities. Yeah, thanks for ha thanks for joining me on this podcast. It was a lot of fun. So uh, we'll talk to you guys next week at the next stop. Sure enough, I got it. Sorry, let's try that again. <laughs> sure enough, I got it. <laughs> that was the beer burp. Yeah, that was the beer burp. I tried to hold it back a little bit. It didn't work. <laughs> I'm hoping to continue kind of going down that path. So, bleh. <laughs> But it does have 29 days to go as of recording this video. This audio. Uh, it's not video. What am I doing? And then you'll row. You'll row the ropes. Uh, row. 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 Your boat. Row your boat. Row your boat to Canada to free the slaves. <laughs> so, so no, you can.